you know, it was because I was young. I was relatively alone in the Middle East. I didn't really know anyone. I didn't have friends or family. So the gym was my family. And being at the, you know, the longer I was at the gym, the more people I happened to see, you know, you overlap with classes and then the next class leaves and then the next class comes in. So that, you know, that for me was, was where I got my sense of community. Welcome to the Bar Bend Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by barbend.com. Today, I'm talking to Steph Chung, an elite CrossFit athlete who's also on the executive committee of the Professional Fitness Athletes Association. After a lengthy gymnastics career in the U.S., Steph discovered CrossFit, which quickly became her primary social outlet while living abroad in the Middle East. It's where she found friends, developed her athleticism, and even where she first met her now husband. Now back in the United States, Steph lives and trains in Massachusetts. She joined us virtually to talk about training, what many elite CrossFitters want to see next for the sport, and much, much more. Also, I want to take a second to say we're incredibly thankful that you listen to this podcast. So if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbend podcast in your app of choice. I'd also recommend subscribing to the Barbend newsletter to stay up to date on all things strength. Just go to barbend.com slash newsletter to start becoming the smartest person in your gym today. Now let's get to it. Steph, thanks so much for joining us today. I've actually never had the pleasure of speaking with you before, but I've been a fan for a while. So this is this is pretty cool. Um, and I got to ask, because the season has, for all sports, for all strength sports, CrossFit, weightlifting, powerlifting, you name it, it's kind of up in the air. Next year's seasons in a lot of these sports are a little bit up in the air. People aren't necessarily sure what they're training for. What are you training for right now? And what does your calendar look like for the remainder of the year? Well, I think that's the big question on everybody's mind. And thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be chatting with you. Um, it, you know, I don't, if 2020 has taught me anything, it's that planning is, has to be kind of short term and you have to be flexible. So I have, I'm a huge planner as well. That's one of my big things. I love to plan way in advance and 2020 has beaten that out of me, you know, whether I was willing or not. Um, so training is going well. Um, I quarantine gave me a good opportunity to work on my running, which I really, really, really needed. Um, we're back in the gym now, uh, in Boston we've opened and things seem to be going pretty well. Um, of course things could change next week, so we'll see. Um, but I'm enjoying it for now. Um, the season, you know, as far as CrossFit goes, it looks like kind of the only thing on the horizon is the CrossFit games. Um, I didn't qualify this year through the open, so um, I won't be going to that. So it looks like I have a, an extended off season going forward until the, the next sanctionals come up. And, and there's been some talk and, and we're recording this and we, we don't know for sure, but Dave Castro talked about it on a live stream about potentially changing the CrossFit open dates back to February, which could impact the rest of qualification season and impact whether or not people actually who needs to compete at sanctionals to qualify for, for next year's games. Um, if the open were to move, to February, you know, do you think that you would try and qualify? Would your goal be to try and qualify for the games out of the open? Or do you kind of still have your sights set on the sanctional season for next year? Well, I always, you know, 
we talk about this as kind of competitive athletes. The open is kind of what kicks off our season. So mm-hmm. I am looking forward to the open, you know, um, I think especially this year, it makes sense to have it in February or March, mm-hmm. particularly with the games being pushed and everything going on with COVID right now. I know gyms in some places like New York where you are, aren't even open. So having it potentially in October just seems like, you know, a push. Um, so, but if, you know, if I'm able to travel to sanctionals, if they're able to host events, I would love to be there. I love to compete person at those events. So I do think it's nice to qualify out of the open. It gives you a little bit, you know, obviously more time to prep for the games, but also, you know, it, it's a great way to start your season. You know, you can use sanctionals as, as practice and really focus on what you need to get better for the rest of the season. Now, with this this current season, the 2020 season, a lot of san- some sanctionals did occur. They obviously happened pre-COVID. And in fact, there were a couple sanctionals that seemed to kind of be taking place while COVID was really hitting. And there were questions on, should we cancel the competition? Should we hold them? A lot was up in the air. Did you have, uh, with the being the great planner you are, did you have events on the calendar that uh, you didn't get to compete in this year? Yeah. So when shutdown kind of happened globally, I was preparing for Iceland. I was a little bit fortunate this year because a lot of the competitions that I actually wanted to compete at um, that were high in my list happened early in the season pre-COVID. So I competed in three competitions in something like four months. So I actually got a lot of competition in on the early side, which obviously was fortunate because I really like to compete and I didn't miss out on a lot of it because of COVID. But I did have, you know, Iceland was a plan. I was in the middle of, you know, prepping and ramping up for that. And I had planned to go to some through the summer as well. Um, They just hadn't solidified yet. But, you know, everything happened so quickly. And once we were a couple weeks in, it was evident that almost nothing was going to be able to continue. So that all got placed kind of on next year. I'm curious about the, the frequency of competition and the strain that puts on, on your body and your training as, as an athlete. It, you know, even five years ago, the CrossFit Games calendar was a lot more spread out. There was the Open, there was regionals, there was the Games. There might be some independent competitions within there. Um, you know, you have your, your Wadapaloozas, the Granite Games, things like that. But these days, it seems like games athletes have the opportunity to compete a lot more frequently, whether they're trying to qualify for the game specifically or not. What is your, and you said you're someone who likes to compete a lot, you know, is there a, a tipping point where your performance starts to be hindered because you're competing too much because you're ramping up and then recovering from these competitions in quick succession? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And to be honest, I haven't had the opportunity to compete back to back like that before. So I did bite off a little bit more that I could chew in the beginning of the season. So I competed in the end of November at filthy One Fifty. Then I went to mayhem in January and two weeks later I was at strength and depth. And I actually had a, a competition Atlas games that was planned for something like a month after uh, strength and depth. I had to, to pull out of that one because I was just too tired. Um, there's definitely a, for me at least, there's definitely a point at which competing was too much. And that was something I learned. I think it's different for every athlete. So some athletes can compete more than others. Others really like, you know, the, the sparse competition. But that's one of the great things about the sanctional system is that you can choose. So if you don't need as much downtime and you just want to compete as much as you can, then you have the opportunity to do that versus the person who wants to, you know, compete at one sanctional and really make it count 
and also do that. You talk about that two week turnaround between those two events. What for you is like a more reasonable turnaround? If you want to compete in you know, two events, what is the quickest kind of back to back that you think you could reasonably do that and feel like you were operating at you know, nearly full capacity? Maybe four weeks. You know, I don't, I don't know for sure. And I think it would depend, you know, you certainly couldn't do one every four weeks for, you know, four months in a row. Had I come off, you know, I had a, a decent little break between Filthy 150 and Mayhem. And I think had I had another week or two in between Mayhem and, and Strength and Depth, then that would have been, that would have been doable. The two week turnaround wasn't quite enough. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about recovery. You know, you're not um, you're not brand new to the to the CrossFit space, but at the same time, you know, you are uh, I think still someone who I I would say from my perspective, and I could be wrong here, is still relatively young in this sport compared to a lot of the other folks in the sport. I hear people use the term, uh, which I kind of hate, but they use it they use it all the time. Uh, training age, and they talk about you know, it doesn't matter how old you are, it matters how how much stress you've you've put on your body as you progress in the sport, as you spend more time training in the sport. Does that impact, or do you find an impact on you know how? how quickly you can recover uh, and the kind of techniques you're using to prioritize your recovery. Definitely. I think my recovery techniques have evolved with my training. Mm -hmm. It, there's so many recovery techniques out there and it really is so individual that you have to figure out what works best for you. And I've definitely done a lot to, to figure out what I can get, you know, the most bang for my buck kind of thing. You know, it, it varies though. So I like having a lot of tools in my arsenal so that, you know, at different points of training, you know, when I'm at, I'm peaking for a competition versus off season, those are different demands on your body. So having a lot of different tools to pull from is really important. Let's talk a little bit about your your just general athletic background because it's something that I think a lot of our listeners might might not know. So, when did you kind of get into to CrossFit? Because I'm always curious about the timeline it takes to go from finding CrossFit to kind of reaching that elite level. And then, what was your athletic background pre CrossFit? Sure. So, I started CrossFit in 2013. It was, I was a gymnast, um, all of my young life and in through college. So I started competing when I was maybe five, you know, I was tiny, like that's all I ever wanted to do. Um, <laughs> so I started competing then I had an injury along the way. So I took a little bit of high, my high school years off. And then when I went to college, I decided to do club gymnastics because that was, um, it was still fun for me. I still wanted to be involved in gymnastics, but my body wasn't ready to take the, the varsity pounding. And to be honest, I wasn't, my skills weren't up to that, uh, competition level. So I did collegiate club gymnastics. And just before my senior year, I was at that crossroads of like looking ahead to the future saying like, you know, there's no future in, in gymnastics for me. I'm going to be too old and it's too hard on my body. So I tried CrossFit. I loved it. And I, after, when I graduated, I continued training, uh, at the kind of recreational class level until I met my husband, my now husband, um, at a gym in the Middle East. And he convinced me that, you know, it's fun to train a little bit more, you know, you, you can come to class and that's fun. But he was noticing that I was hanging around for, you know, hours afterwards, just socializing with people just cause I wanted to be with my friends. And he said, you know, if you train just a little bit more, you'll actually make use of the time that you're, you're at the gym. And so that's how I, I started training actually training for CrossFit rather than just being a class athlete. 
So you're one of those people who kind of hangs out in the back after class, kind of doing like a lengthy cool down, gossiping, yes. chatting, talking about the workout. It was, that was it, totally me. Yes. We need a nickname for those people because we see those, those, those people that's at every gym. It's not just at CrossFit gyms. I first saw it at CrossFit gyms because CrossFit is, has such a social component and that's where people meet their friends and they, they want to spend a lot of time there, but it's the same in powerlifting gyms, weightlifting gyms. There are those people who you're one, you always wonder like, are they about to take class? Are they about to train? Or have they just been yeah. here for two hours since the most recent, since the most recent class? And you like build that friend group around that. Absolutely. I would, I mean, myself, I fall into the group of like ever stretchers, like just could stretch for hours, <laughs> just sitting around, not particularly doing anything, but just stretching and enjoying people's company. Um, that was definitely me. And, you know, it was because I was young. I was relatively alone in the Middle East. I didn't really know anyone. I didn't have friends or family. So the gym was my family. And being at the, you know, the longer I was at the gym, the more people I happened to see, you know, you overlap with classes and then the next class leaves and then the next class comes in. So that, you know, that for me was, was where I got my sense of community. Now, when did you move back to the United States along this timeline? Yeah. Early 2019, right in the middle of the, the last open that fell in February, March. Okay. So you were still living in, you were still living in the Middle East when you qualified for your first games, correct? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, sorry. You asked about how long it took. So I started in 2013, I guess I started, um, it took from then it took three years for me to make my first regionals in 2016. And then I qualified, it took two years, um, three years at regionals, um, in 2018, I qualified for the, the CrossFit games. Is there a, a breakthrough moment you had in training kind of leading up to that, to that year's regionals where you, where you knew you're like, Hey, this is the year, this is the year I'm qualifying. Or was it more of a gradual process, just steady improvement kind of year to year? It definitely wasn't all linear upwards. Um, I had a pretty good rookie year at regionals by, by my standards. Um, and going into 2017, I held myself to kind of high standards. It looked, and I think my mindset was, was wrong. You know, I looked at it in terms of like, Oh, well I need to perform this way. I need to finish in, you know, the top 10 to be successful rather than really finding the joy in the process. And so I had, you know, a not so good 2017 regionals. Um, and the next time I competed was at Wadapalooza in January. And that also didn't go as well as I wanted it to. So I, that was kind of my breakthrough mental moment was realizing like, you know, I wasn't very happy after either of those competitions. And so I was questioning, you know, do I even want to do this anymore? Do I like competing full time? Um, is this fun for me? And the answer was yes, because I love, you know, (laughs) I love competing, but I wasn't enjoying my training because I was putting so much pressure on myself, um, on the outcome. And so the mental turnaround for me was like, okay, I need to just focus on the process and really get back to loving the training and what, you know, what drives me to the competition floor really is my training. What are some of the, what are some of your biggest strengths as a, uh, as a CrossFit athlete? Would you say like workouts where you see those programmed and you're like, this is me, this is Steph's event. Well, I really like chippers as a, as a group of workouts, um, kind of the longer grinds, longer rep schemes in general. Um, I tend to really like those, um, movements. I really like gymnastics movements. 
they come a little bit more naturally to me, you know, Hanson's, uh, bar muscle ups, toast bar, that kind of thing. But it took a while to get, you know, good at some of the other things. So I came in, you know, relative on the higher end of a skill level in gymnastics, but I came in like at the super low level of like weightlifting and monostructural. So definitely I would, I'd classify myself as a better all around CrossFitter. So I'm not particularly excellent in any one area, but I try to be a pretty good all around competitor. And and speaking of the gymnastics background, I've had this debate with a number of people. It's got to be the best sport to have a background in when you're getting into CrossFit, right? Like, is there a better one? Am I missing something here? It's interesting. I just had this conversation with multiple people. I think the quarantine, like people have really had time to contemplate this. There are are only like three (laughs) things that people can talk about during quarantine and fitness. And this is clearly one of them. And this is like, were you born into it or not? Um, So I think gymnastics is definitely a great foundation for CrossFit. Um, It gives you, you know, the obvious kind of skills um, and, but also, and body awareness. I think that's a really important thing. Um, But for me, I think the most important thing I got from gymnastics was the mentality, kind of the mindset of training and like being okay, being in the gym for a a long time and be doing things that are seemingly boring that will then, you know, make you better at something interesting later. Mm -hmm is gymnastics the best thing to come into CrossFit with? (laughs) Um, I think it's very specialized. So, you know, you end up being really good at some things, but I think it would be more beneficial to be an all around athlete. Um, you know, whether you have to do different sports to get that as well, or you can be, you know, a gymnast who is naturally born with these athletic abilities. Like, you know, like I mentioned, I started at the bottom end of weightlifting. I was barely, you know, back squatting 75 pounds when I came into CrossFit and I couldn't run, you know, I still to this day, I'm working on my running. So, and that all is because, you know, I never touched a barbell when I was younger and, um, it took a long time to build up those skills and we really never ran in gymnastics either for distance, you know, sprinting was fine, but, um, so I think it gives you a really, really good foundation, probably better than, you know, some sports, but the conversation I was having the other day with someone was like, you know, if you wanted your kid to be the a CrossFit games champion, would you put them into gymnastics? And I said, you know, yes, but probably not like that wouldn't be the only thing that they did. They, you know, you'd have to do something else to get the other kind of skills that gymnastics misses. That'd be such a busy kid because they'd be in gymnastic classes a few days a week. They'd have weightlifting training. Then they'd have their GPP, their general physical preparation, obviously. They'd be on the track team. And what else am I missing here? There's got to be, oh, they have to swim. They have to be on a swim team as well. Yeah, yeah. They have to do a lot of things. I mean, I think you can, as a parent, you know, I'm not a parent, so I can only speculate. But as a parent, you can probably curate your kid to be as much as good at everything as you want them to be, but if they don't like what they're doing in terms of fitness, then they're never going to stick with it. And they're probably going to resist every effort to actually do what you want them to. So my, my little brother, my youngest brother is actually really athletically gifted in almost every way, but he ended up a gymnast at, um, at Iowa. And, you know, so he has a great background in gymnastics, but he played a lot of different sports growing up as well. He played football and baseball. And I think my parents were really smart to let him do that because he wasn't all in in gymnastics like I was. 
So if they had really forced that on him, he probably would have ended up quitting. But because he had the kind of all around sports background, he made the decision to stick with gymnastics for himself. Sorry, that was a really roundabout story. No, it, it's a great, I actually have a follow-up question. If he's, yeah. he's on the gymnastics team at, at Iowa, is that D1 gymnastics? It is. Okay, so that's a great gymnastics program. Yeah. After his gymnastics career is over, whenever that is, are you going to try and get him into CrossFit? That's my question now. Yeah, so Rob, my husband, and I have already tried to plant the seeds. Um, you know, Addison is very strong-willed, so if he doesn't want to do it, it's just not happening. So we've been very careful in how we've approached it, but you know, obviously I think he'd be a really great CrossFitter. I think he, he's really skilled. He's really athletic in a lot of different ways. Um, and so I think it just depends on how bored he gets after gymnastics, you know, coming from a D one program, it's pretty rigorous. It's definitely more rigorous than, you know, the gymnastics programs that I was in. So, um, there's some level of burnout, I think after, after graduation, but he's fairly competitive like I am. So I think he'll be yearning for that, like drive again. And you're just going to, you're going to serve it up on a silver platter be like, Hey, if you want it. <laughs> also my coaching's only this much per month. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. No, sh- we, we would make an exception for him, but he's uh no, I mean, he, he definitely knows, you know, um, whenever he wants to come into cross it, even if he doesn't want to compete, Rob and I will, will help him and, and all that. I think it really for him is just figuring out what he wants to do after gymnastics, because for so long, that's been all he can do. All right. This is, this is going to, I'm going to, I have another family question, but I'm going to change it a little bit. I want to ask about uh, being in a, in a, being part of a CrossFit couple, you met your husband at the gym and you're a, you're a very competitive person. I don't know. I don't know your husband. Is that ever like a point of tension in the relationship, getting competitive about your fitness, getting competitive on workouts? Okay. It's funny that you asked that because I just posted something the other day. Um, we don't get competitive with each other. Okay. But he, he was, um, he was my coach for a while. Um, he doesn't coach me so much on the day to day anymore because he has a lot of other stuff going on. Um, but you know, he still knows me very well as an athlete, obviously. And so, um, he programmed, we programmed together for the online, um, an online coaching business that we run. And so he'll program some workouts and just ask me, you know, Hey, how long would, how long would this take you Is my timing kind of right on it. And so we did one the other day, he did one. And before he started, he said, you know, how long would this workout take you? Um, it was three rounds, 20 box facing burpee box jump overs and 20 toast to bar. And I said, um, six minutes you know, I did the quick math in my head. I was like, Oh, six minutes. And he was like, yeah. Okay. And he went away. And then in the middle of the workout, he came back to me. He's like, no way. Would you go six minutes on this? Like, you know, and then he came to me afterwards and said like, I don't, there's no way that you can do it in six minutes. I don't even think you'll finish the three rounds in the time that it took me to get two. So I can't, I was like, you know what? Game on. And so I came in the next day and that's the first thing that I did. I did the workout. Um, so I guess like we are very competitive, but not necessarily with each other. You know, he, he is very much like CrossFit is for fitness and longevity for him. Um, he used to compete. He was on a team that went to the, the Asia regionals back in 2014, back in the old system. Um, but a long time ago, he started focusing on coaching as his sole thing. So um, he kind of put aside the competitive aspect and started coaching. But we do like 
you know, he knows exactly how to push the competitive button in me. That's for sure. So I got, I got to ask who was right. Like, how long did it take you to do the workout? Come on. Like, well, I guess neither of us was right. I did it in six twenty one. That's pretty close. That's pretty close. It's pretty close. And, um, he was, he was sitting there laughing. He was doing his training because, you know, he obviously wanted to see what happened. And, um, and I was on track to be sub six actually. And then my toast bar just disappeared. Like I have no idea, (laughs) but the last round, you know, like, I think you can hear in the video, I went for my first set and I did like five and he goes, uh Oh, cause usually my, my first set is like 10, you know, much bigger than that. And they just, you know, we're gone. I think part of it is like, we have to wear masks in Boston here. And so it's kind of that, um, like feeling like you can't breathe. And, um, anyways, so he was kind of right. I didn't do it in six minutes, but I also didn't do it in like, you know, eight to nine. And that actually makes me feel a lot better to know that even a games uh, athlete like yourself will occasionally just lose toes to bar. Like they just, they just disappear <laughs> and there's no getting them back. Like I, I, how many, how many, I can't even count how many times I've like started off so strong, feeling great. And then on that third set and sets of 20 are big on that movement. I'm like, well, I guess I'm doing twos or I guess <laughs> I'm you know, like, I'm doing singles at the end and that's just how it's going to be today. So thank you, by the way, for, for making this feel much more relatable. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad I can be relatable. It's well, it's funny because like in quarantine, I think, you know, I came back from the gym and was like, you know, everything's feeling kind of good. Like weightlifting is going okay. Of course I had to go light for a week or two, but then like, this was the first workout that I really done volume toes to bar and really just like, was like, I, I have no idea what happened there. So I think that's the, that's going to be one of the quarantine casualties. I'm going to have to build up my toast to bar capacity again. Well, if it makes you feel any better, uh, mine are, I um, have definitely left and, uh, I don't know, <laughs> like they might be worse than when, than when we started. Um, I do want to, I do want to change direction a little bit because something I know you've, you've been involved in, uh, is the PFAA, the PFAA, the professional fitness athletes association. And I'm kind of curious as to your personal take about, you know, what as a, a high level athlete, you would like to see, change, uh, in competition moving forward from your experience, the way athletes are treated, the way competitions are run. You all have obviously started working with a lot of, and talking to a lot of event organizers, CrossFit independent organizers. And we've covered that on Barbed, so I'll link to it in the show notes here. But, you know, as, as an athlete, what are some changes that you would like to see to the experience you have competing throughout the year? And maybe even more importantly, future generations of athlete in fitness sports. Well, personally, I, I think it would be just great if CrossFit could become more of a, a professional sport, um, mm. you know, more media coverage, more, you know, on the, it's already on the global stage, but more of more recognized as a sport that people see and think like, Oh, right. Um, you know, CrossFit is on, on Saturday. Right. Like let's watch that. Um, that's, you know, my personal goal for, the future of CrossFit. Of course it takes, it'll take a while to get there. I think it would be really nice, um, if athletes could become professional athletes on their own Mm. rather than, you know, needing like most athletes do now, they need to either coach or own an affiliate to earn a living or have another job. Some, some professional athletes I know work their nine to five, you know, not in the fitness industry. So 
I think that would be a very cool thing to see the sport evolve into. Uh, I am definitely as a, a member of the executive board of the PFAA, I am totally on board with our initial mission to get safety and fairness guidelines out to events. That's kind of something that has needed to happen for a while. And it's nothing radical. It's nothing crazy. It's just, um, you know, providing these guidelines for events so that they know, you know, on the athlete side, what are the expectations and maybe just facilitate the event planning process for them. When it comes to competing at different events and you've competed at, at regionals, you've competed at the games and you've competed at a number of sanctionals events. How, how, how can that athlete experience differ between event currently? In terms of the safety and fairness? Well, it could be in terms of safety and fairness. It could be in terms of, um, yeah, I mean, it could be in, in, in terms of how you're, how you're treated, your experience and everything from like checking in to experience on the competition floor, the scheduling of the events and the cadence about on how the events actually take place over the course of a given weekend. You know, there is no consistent framework where every single event is kind of run with the same specifications. I mean, there are some kind of best practices that seem to have been generally adopted, but um, is, you know, am I right in, in thinking there's a good bit of inconsistency between those as far as how, what you experience, not necessarily what we as the viewers see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's, that's, you know, both a good thing because events have their own identity mm. and they're get, they have just like a, affiliates, you know, an affiliate pays their affiliation fee. They get to do whatever they want with the business. An event organizer, you know, gets to, for the most part, do whatever they want. So thing, you know, everything could be different. Um, programming is, I guess, probably the most obvious one that the viewers see. So, um, how, what events are programmed, what movements are programmed, um, if it biases, you know, one modality over another. Um, the other thing that could vary is media coverage. So whether they do a live stream or they just keep it to, you know, Facebook live and Instagram updates, how many photographers they have there, what the exposure is like for the athletes, how many sponsoring organizations there are. So there's a lot of ways that competitions vary and not necessarily to the fault of the organizers at all, but it is very much a unique experience at each one. Mm -hmm. um, so at an, as an athlete, you know, you try to pick the ones that kind of meet your standards individually, but there hasn't been a lot of, a lot of a unifying voice between athletes saying that, Hey, these are things that we all expect from an mm -hmm. event. You know, so when I pick my sanctionals, I'm picking the ones that generally, you know, I think do a really good job of programming are really well organized, um, and kind of have athletes interests in mind, but it would be really cool if we came together as athletes, which we're trying to do now and say that these are just some kind of universal things that would be really nice. Mm -hmm. That way everyone's literally quite literally on the same page instead of yeah. each individual athlete having their own checklist. What are some of the, of the specific uh, safety protocols and measures that you personally would like to see as standardized across events? So some simple things, um, that have been good at some events and, um, you know, not so good at others. So for example, rope climbs, mm. um, having some kind of softer mat underneath a rope climb, uh, would be great. Or at least having, you know, the rope be short enough that you're not at risk of rolling your ankle coming down from one. Um, I don't, I'm maybe one of the clumsier athletes when it comes to this, but I have 
quite a few times had a, an ankle scare coming down quickly from a rope climb just in practice mm. and landing on the rope in a bad way and kind of rolling your ankle and coming off like, is it okay? You know, like, and that's kind of the last thing that you want to do in a competition is, um, put your body at risk because you're trying to go extra fast to win and then having to worry as well that that might injure you. Mm -hmm. Um, so things like mats, um, crash pads, um, making sure, you know, the ring straps are tested. So the one isn't going to, you know, come loose in the middle of a set. Um, just general, really, really things that, you know, I don't think they're groundbreaking. I don't think that it's going to, you know, bankrupt events to put, to implement those measures and maybe event organizers, you know, it's one thing that gets overlooked and it's something that we can help prevent them from having to think about, you know, it's Mm. one thing we take off their plate. They just run through a list and say, Oh, we do have rope climbs. Great. I'll make sure that there's a mat underneath. And I ask that because as a spectator, we don't necessarily see these things. We see rope climbs and we see people, you know, shooting up and down the rope and that's cool. But for us, you know, we're not there on the floor. We don't get the perspective of of how high some of these climbs are and how daunting it can seem uh, or that risk reward ratio of like coming down the rope fast, but also at the same time wanting to have a, a softer, safe landing. And so the first thing that comes to the spectator's mind about that event is maybe, oh, cool, or this person's going really fast, not necessarily, hey, is it a safe environment for landing? So I, I think that's something that, you know, we as spectators, I I personally am really interested to hear from the PFAA and you all as you move forward regarding like, hey, here's what really concerns us on the field of play and here are the changes we want to see. So that's uh, it's very, very interesting. And I appreciate that kind of insider's perspective on what it's like to compete. Yeah, it's that's how you bring up a good point as well. You know, the as a spectator and as an event organizer, you want something to be interesting for you to watch. Mm-hmm. So you're not necessarily thinking about the other aspects. And, you know, that's a great point. Event organizers have a lot to think about. They have yeah. to put on a good show, you know? So it's, it's something where, you know, it might not come to the mind of someone who's not doing it a lot. And as athletes, we've competed collectively in hundreds, if not thousands of sanctionals, so hopefully our experience and our knowledge can just be an asset to event organizers so that, you know, we take one less thing. We provide something that makes their job a little bit easier. And I know that, you know, in communicating with them, they all want us to have a good experience. You know, they, they want athletes to like their event, to enjoy it and come back next year. And so I'm really hoping that this can be something positive and an initiative that we're working together on. I am, I am curious, have you as an athlete ever received like a follow-up survey or a satisfaction survey from an event after you competed in it? Yes. Yes, I definitely have. Um, from some, not others, it's not universal. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, some events do send feedback surveys. Cool. That was just great. Yeah. I was just kind of, I was kind of curious because as, as the conversation becomes a little bit more solidified and maybe a little bit more, more formalized, you know, I, that might be something we expect to, to see more of. And I realized it's nothing I'd ever actually asked a games athlete of before. So kind of cool. Well, Steph, thank you so much for joining us. Where's the best place for people to keep up to date with you, your training and what's next in your athletic and coaching career? Absolutely. Well, I try to consolidate everything to my Instagram account, which is Steph Chung two, the number two. Um, 
And, you know, I try to keep everything, everything there and everything relevant. So, um, I have a link tree based in my bio and that also links to the, the coaching that I'm doing. We're trying to expand our online coaching a bit now that, um, you know, some people are stuck at home with in COVID restrictions. So we want to just help as many people as we possibly can. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. 